ask that you would turn now in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 5. We will begin in verse 18 and continue to the end of the chapter. Hear again the word of God Almighty. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we seek your help as we come to your word. We ask, O God, again, that you would bless your word. Father, we know that apart from you, we would profit nothing. We know, O God, that all the labors in preaching and in hearing sermons would be nothing apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that we would be attentive, that we, O Lord, would make the very best use of your word, that we would treasure it in our hearts. That, Lord, by it we would be saved. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Here in verses 18 through 25 of Romans chapter 5, the apostle is completing his comparison of Adam and Christ. We will look at this text this evening in three parts. We will see a summary of his argument in verse 18. A digression to discuss the law in verse 20, and then his conclusion in verse 21. All of this showing, very simply, that God's grace ultimately triumphs over man's sin. God's grace triumphs over man's sin. First, the apostle summarizes his argument thus far. The English word, therefore, in verse 18 actually translates a Greek phrase that is somewhat awkward in English, but it's consequently then. It's a double conjunction. And it's indicating to us that Paul is summing up his argument from verses 12 through 17 when he compared and contrasted Adam and Christ. And in fact, you can notice by the terminology he begins to use that he's actually going all the way back to chapter 3, verse 21, where he started talking about justification. So he's bringing together many threads of an argument and summing them all up in this place. We find here in these verses three more comparisons between Adam and Christ. One of them will be here in verse 18, another one in verse 19, and then one more in verse 21. We will note them as we come to them. Let's look first at this comparison in verse 18. It refers to two different men, who performed two different acts and brought about two different results. The two men, of course, are Adam and Christ. This is exactly who the apostle has been speaking of thus far. And the two actions are, on the one hand, an offense, 
and on the other hand, a righteous act. Some translations might say a righteous deed or one deed of righteousness. And you well know that the offense refers to Adam's sin, and the righteous act refers to Christ's death. The two results that follow are as different as the two men and their two actions. The first is condemnation in Adam, and the second is justification of life in Christ. The meaning of the word condemnation is easy to understand. In Adam, man is guilty and therefore sentenced to punishment, namely the punishment of death, death physically and death spiritually, death temporally, that is here and now, and death eternally, that is the torments of hell. That is man's condemnation. The term justification of life refers to the life which results from or comes out of justification. You were justified when you believed. Now, being justified, you have entered into eternal life, a life that will continue forever and ever. So, whereas Adam's trespass or offense resulted in sin and death, Christ's sacrifice or his one act of righteousness resulted in righteousness and eternal life. Observe even now that what you have gained in Christ excels what you lost in Adam. Now you may have noticed the phrase all men here in verse 18. It occurs twice, once in reference to Adam and the results of his sin and once in reference to Christ and the results of his act of righteousness. Through Adam's offense, judgment came to all men. And through Christ's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. Now, the wording of this comparison has led some interpreters to believe something that is called universalism. By that, they believe that Christ's sacrifice, Christ's act of obedience, extends to all men in the sense of every man. They reason that since Adam's offense condemned Every man, all men die in Adam, every man dies, it would seem to them to follow that Christ's righteous act will result in justification for all men in the sense of every man. We maintain, however, that whereas every man is indeed condemned in Adam, only those who believe in Jesus Christ are justified in him. It is grammatically possible to take this verse in isolation and come to the conclusion that all men, meaning every man, is justified in Jesus Christ. However, beloved, remember that as always is the case, Scripture is the authoritative interpreter of Scripture. Why is that? The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. God the Holy Spirit authors Scripture And God the Holy Spirit interprets himself when he speaks in other places. We cannot simply read one sentence in Romans chapter 5 verse 18 in a way that would contradict the rest of scripture. Because that would imply that the Holy Spirit was at some some point contradicting himself. 
The righteousness of Christ is received by faith. And this is taught dozens upon dozens of times just in the book of Romans. I'm going to give you a small sampling of them. Just take my word for it, though there are many more even in the book of Romans. Uh, There are some just about in every chapter, but I'm just going to briefly give you some examples. In chapter 1, verse 17, we learn that the just shall live by faith. In chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, we read that the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So here you see both by faith and on all who believe. In chapter 3, verse 25, God set forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood through faith. So you see there is no propitiation without through faith. The next verse, we read that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. A couple of verses later in 328, Paul says, we conclude that a man is justified by faith. Just a couple more. Chapter 4, verse 5, we read, To him who believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. After a discussion of Abraham, who was justified by faith, in chapter 4, verse 24, Paul says, Righteousness shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. I'll say one more. I have a longer list here, but I'm going to stop short. Take my word for it. Throughout the book of Romans, justification is always connected to the instrumentality of faith. There is no justification apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So here in verse 18, if the apostle were teaching that every man, that all men in the sense of every man, were justified, then he would be contradicting all of those dozens of statements in the rest of the book of Romans. Now, there is a parallel statement to this one in the book of 1 Corinthians. Same author, Paul. Same author, God, the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 22. If you want to flip there, I'll give you just a second. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now here we see that the difference between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. The difference is between those who are in Adam, rather, and those who are in Christ. Every man is in Adam. He is the progenitor of the human race. But which men are in Christ? Those men who believe in him. Those who are united to him as their head by faith. And I think this is a helpful way to understand the passage before us. Some men are in Christ because only some men believe in Christ. Now, a careful examination of the immediate context of verse 18 confirms this interpretation for us. 
follow me here for a moment. In verse 15 of Romans chapter 5, we read this. The free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense the many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Skipping down to verse 17. By the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Now notice this, that in verse 15, Adam's offense extends to many, and Christ's gift extends to many. These two things, Adam's offense and Christ's gift, are parallel with the things we were discussing in verse 18, in which Adam's offense extends to all men, and Christ's righteousness, or his righteous act, is said to extend to all men. And when we come to verse 17, we see that the grace and the gift of righteousness through Jesus Christ is parallel to the many of verse 16 and therefore the all of verse 18. What I am telling you is this. The all men of verse 18 are the many of verse 17, and the many of verse 17 are limited in the text of those who receive the grace in verse 17. We must conclude from the context of the passage itself that Christ's righteous deed results in justification of life for those who receive the abundance of grace, which is to say those who believe. The righteousness of Christ does not go to all men, but rather the righteousness of Christ goes to those who receive the grace of God by faith. Moving then to verse 19, we see it is an explanation of verse 18. So verse 18 is telling us essentially that we are condemned in Adam, but justified in Jesus Christ. Verse 19 then begins to explain that. And this is indicated by the word for. The conjunction for tells us we're getting either a reason or an explanation. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners... So also, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Note now that the all in the previous verse are the many in this verse, indicating again that our interpretation of verse 18 is correct. So we found another comparison here, one in which the disobedience of Adam is compared with the obedience of Jesus Christ. Adam's offense, his disobedience, resulted in condemnation. Why? Because his diso- by his disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam, representing the many, when he disobeyed, made many sinners. On the other hand, Christ's righteous act results in justification and life. Why? Because by his obedience, many will be made righteous. Christ's righteous act was not for his own sake, and he was not a private person. He was a public person, a representative who performed a righteous act for your sakes. This is spoken of in 
Well, let me first say that Christ's obedience refers to his death on the cross, primarily, which is spoken of in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. It says this, Being found in the appearance of a man, Christ humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So Christ's primary obedience is demonstrated in his resisting sin and obeying the Father all the way up to and including his death on the cross. Whereas Adam disobeyed and brought about death, Jesus obeyed all the way up to death, even death on the cross. Now, implicit in Christ's obedience unto death, we have to understand his lifelong obedience. You see, in order to be an acceptable sacrifice, in order to be a pleasing sacrifice, he needed to be without spot or blemish. He could not be, like any of the other priests, having his own sins. He needed to be a sinless sacrifice in order to be acceptable to God. For if he had not been sinless, he would have had to have had someone sacrifice for him. Now, if Jesus had disobeyed at any one point, not only would he have been unable to earn righteousness for us, but he also would have brought about the same results as Adam did. You see, when Adam was given the terms of the covenant in the garden and he disobeyed, all mankind went with him. Jesus was set in the same position as Adam and given the terms of the covenant. And if he had disobeyed, we would have gone along with him. Praise be to God, he obeyed throughout his entire life. Therefore, that obedience is reckoned to us when we believe in Jesus. Now, this righteousness spoken of in verse 19 refers to that justification which produces life back in verse 18, the the justification of life. But notice this. It's in the future tense here. Adam's sin is discussed in the past tense, and the condemnation is a past thing. Men are already condemned, but this righteousness is in the future, will be made righteous. This indicates that this is not speaking only of our justification, our being declared righteous, but also of our sanctification, our actually being made righteous. And that is the end of our salvation, is that we will be finally and fully conformed to the righteousness of God by the power of the Holy Spirit based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So those who are initially declared righteous in Christ are progressively made righteous by that same Christ. Verse 20 then is a slight digression. We come to verse 20 to look at this slight digression in which the apostle returns to the subject of the law. Back in verses 13 and 14, he had said that sin was in the world before the law was given. He was talking about the fact that before the law of Moses came, sin was already in the world. And death reigned from Adam until Moses. And the law actually came in after that. 
And so it would be a natural question for a reader or a hearer of these words to say, why then did God give the law? What is the purpose of it? And his answer is this in verse 20. The law entered that the offense might abound. Now this is somewhat perplexing, but it basically is telling us that God gave the law under Moses in order that sin or the offense would increase. Well, what does it mean for sin to abound or increase? Well, first of all, it does not mean that the law actually increased or added to sin, made more sins. You understand that if you were to walk into a dark room and turn on the light and see cockroaches scurrying about, the light did not cause or create those cockroaches. The light exposed or revealed the cockroaches that were already there when it was dark. In fact, there were more of them when it was dark. Let that comfort you when you go to bed this evening. In the same way, the law does not literally increase sin, but what the law does is reveals and magnifies sin. Now, here are some ways that it does that. Number one, the law increases our knowledge of sin. It shows us what our sins are. Paul said this back in chapter 3, verse 20. The law brings knowledge of sin. The law is an objective standard that God has given by which a man's conduct can be observed. It is a straight edge, a line, and it says if you're on this side of the line, you're a transgressor. So the law increases our knowledge of sin. Secondly, the law increases the guilt of our sin. Jesus said this in Luke 12, The servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few. We see that Jesus is expounding on the principle that knowledge of the law increases our guilt if we break the law. It is one thing to break a law in ignorance. It is another thing to be fully informed and to know what is God's will for you and then to break the law. It is an aggravation of your guilt. So the law being given and specified under Moses was a means of increasing their awareness of their guilt before God. Thirdly, the law increases the sinfulness of sin. And what I mean by that is it increases the man, a man's sense of the vileness and the wickedness and the iniquity of his sin. In Romans chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, we will read that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Do you see how the law is being used to expose the sinfulness of sin, to show its ugliness? It is almost as if it's a a background against which sin is set, so that you are aware of it and have a deeper sense of the sinfulness of it. 
one more way in which the law causes sin to abound or increases sin. And that is, it increases the beauty of Christ. We read this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. We read this a little bit in the book of Numbers in chapter 15. When the people had committed sins, they were to make these offerings. And through these offerings, God made atonement for them and their sins were forgiven. But you must understand that the blood of bulls and goats could never wash away sins. Those ceremonies had been put in place in order to tutor or bring the people to come to faith in Christ. You see, this refers not only to the moral law, but to all of the types and shadows of the ceremonial law. Consider for a moment, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says this, Purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Do you notice how Paul is using Old Testament categories of leaven, and Passover to describe New Testament realities of sin and salvation. Now, it's not so much that Paul took New Testament things, New Testament realities, and read them back into the Old Testament, but rather these Old Testament themes, these Old Testament terms of leaven and Passover and all of the types and shadows were always designed to communicate the realities which would be seen in the New Testament. You see, they were there to beautify Jesus Christ, to make people aware of their need for the Savior. When we see then that the law was put in place to increase the beauty of Christ, to help man see their sins, and to find the satisfaction of their sins, those sins, In a mediator, in a substitute, we understand that the law was an instrument of mercy, a means of grace. We are Presbyterians. We believe in the means of grace. The means of the outward and ordinary means of grace include the word of God. And the word of God includes not only promises, but also commands. And it is a means of grace. And it is a means of grace, and you'll see how this works in the next phrase. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Do you see how God is using the law that he gave in order to actually outdo the sins that men commit? We can illustrate this a few places. Sin abounded, right? Sin went beyond and and. Uh, excelled, it increased in Adam's fall. There had been no sin, and then suddenly there was sin. And it increased, and it spread throughout the whole earth. But, even on the day that Adam sinned, the Lord gave the promise of the Savior. He gave the promise of the seed. And so you see, grace abounded much more than sin when sin first started. Now, sin surely abounded in Abraham's day. But, according to the promise, according to the promises that God gave to Abraham, 
the grace abounded much more. We learned all about Abraham and how it was his faith in God's promise through which he was reckoned righteous. So do you see, once again, when sin abounded, grace actually abounded much more. You can read of Israel's history, and you will see in many, many places, sin abounded. But with all the prophecies and the promises, with all of the ceremonies, with all the types and shadows, with all of these things that promised the Messiah, grace abounded much more. We see that sin abounded in Christ's day. It reached its climax when his own people, even Israel, handed their Messiah over to Gentiles to be crucified and murdered. But with the resurrection of Christ, we see that grace actually abounded more than that sin. So sin, up to the time of Christ, reached its climax in the murder of the Son of God. But it was actually by means of that that the Lord abounded his grace even more than that sin. For that was the occasion that brought about the resurrection of Christ and therefore the forgiveness of sins. All of this to say is that God uses even sin to serve his grace. Wherever man's sin has increased, God's grace has increased all the more. And the reason for this is that God's grace is greater than man's sin. We come now to the conclusion of this section in verse 21. Paul says, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here we see the purpose. So that the purpose of God's grace abounding more. Why does God's grace always abound more than the sin? Well, this is shown to us by the comparison. And it is a comparison between the reign of sin, which came by Adam, and the reign of grace, which came by Jesus Christ. Now, we understand this intuitively, that the greater the strength of an enemy, the greater the glory of the conqueror. And sin and death are powerful enemies, but righteousness and life are greater still. Observe here two ways in which grace triumphs over sin in this verse. First of all, the reign of grace is through righteousness. You remember that the reign of sin began with a transgression against God's righteousness. But grace reigns, not by overlooking sin, nor even by destroying all sinners, but by defeating sin and replacing it with righteousness. In this way, God dealt both justly with sin and justifies the ungodly. So the reign of grace is through righteousness which is greater than sin. The second way is that the reign of grace is to or unto eternal life. This refers to the final result. Now we know that death is the result of sin and death began with the first sin and it continues because all sin. 
But when by grace God removes sin, its results are reversed. If you take sin out of the equation, then death is also defanged, isn't it? You see, sin is replaced by righteousness and death is replaced by life. When sinners, that's you all and me, when sinners are joined to Christ by faith, his righteousness is imputed for their justification and it is implanted for their sanctification. And the result of this, the final result, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, which is exactly what it says here in this passage. So you see, the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not the sin of Adam gets the last word. And this is because, very simply, the grace of God will always triumph over man's sin. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we confess that your grace is too marvelous, that we struggle to understand it. We are tempted to believe that sin, the sin of our first father, or, oh God, our own sins, would somehow triumph over your grace. But, Lord, you tell us in your word that your grace abounds more. Father, we praise you for your grace. We praise you that your grace sent to us a Savior, and that that Savior obeyed and sacrificed himself and earned righteousness for us, and that we, believing in him, are counted righteous, and that we, believing in him, are growing in righteousness, and that we, believing in him, will one day reign in heaven with him forever and ever, being perfectly righteous. We thank you, O God, and we ask you to hasten that day. In Jesus' precious name, amen.